So Paul uses the same word two times there in the first couple of verses. And the word is translated in most of your translations, press on. That's the verb, press on. That is a word that comes from the athletic world or even the military world. And it's a word that refers to intensity. Who's the most intense person you've ever been around? What is that person like? What kind of characteristics does that person have? When I think about that question, interestingly enough this week, my mind immediately went back to my freshman year in high school. My freshman year in high school, I was on the freshman basketball team, and it was the pinnacle of my stellar athletic career. And uh, we were really a good team. We had stomped every team we had played. I was the point guard, which meant I dribbled the ball up the court and distributed the ball to people that were better than me and could score. And... Um, And we had done really well. We were kind of getting cocky. It was about halfway through the season. And so the varsity coach set up a scrimmage between our team and the JV team. And the JV team is full of sophomores and juniors, guys that are one to two years older than us. And on the JV team was the most intense person I've ever known. His name was Cody. And guess what position Cody played? Point guard. Point guard. And I knew that Cody was going to be guarding me the entire scrimmage. And Cody knew this as well. And I dreaded this. Cody's one of those guys that had this ferocious, laser-like look in his eyes all of the time. He's like Jack Nicholson in The Shining Intense. He's crazy intense. He's off the scale, off the Richter scale intense, and he can't ever dial it back at all. And so on the basketball court, Cody is the kind of guy that thinks he's playing football, you know, but really it's basketball. He guards you on defense with that kind of intensity. And so the day of the scrimmage arrived, and I was in the locker room getting my jersey on, and Cody walks right up to me, and he looks me square in the eyes, and he says, I'm going to be all over you today, Evans. And I thought, "Uh uh-oh. I'm feeling kind of sick. Actually, I don't feel real well. And so the game begins, and Cody lived up to his word. He was all over me. He full court pressured me the entire first quarter so that I could barely get the ball across half court. At the end of the first quarter, my coach benched me. I had something like zero points, zero assists, and about six turnovers. It was a humiliating experience, and I think that that's what the coach intended. He wanted to humble us freshman high school basketball players. That's my experience of the most intense person I've ever been around. I wonder what yours is. What do you think of when you think of intensity? Who do you think of when you think of intensity? These verses from the Apostle Paul, who himself was a pretty intense fellow by all accounts, these verses are about the idea of spiritual intensity. They're about the idea of pressing on towards the goal. And I want to think with you this morning for a couple of minutes about what that might look like in our lives. What would it look like for you and for me to live out more faithfully what Paul writes about here in these verses in Philippians? Let's think about that for a couple of minutes together. Paul, in the first part of Philippians 3, has just retold his own story. We looked at that last week and how he had met Jesus. And he finished that great passage in verse 11 by writing that knowing Jesus means that he wants to know the power of the resurrection, that by any means possible, he may attain the resurrection of the dead. You see that there in verse 11. And then in verse 12, Paul begins by saying, not that I have already obtained this. So what he is doing in these verses is correcting a potential misinterpretation of his prior words. He has, he's saying, I haven't yet fully arrived as a Christian. 
And nor will any of those who follow Jesus in this world fully arrive. Paul is saying that the Christian life, becoming a follower of Jesus and seeking to live in that way, requires that we faithfully press on. That we live with a certain spiritual intensity. And so that's what Paul's going to write about in these verses. And let me sum up, sum up the main idea like this. Here's Paul's point. Christians are called to press on towards the goal of the resurrection. Okay, so two points for you this morning as we think about that main idea. First, Paul writes about pressing on towards the goal. We just saw in verses 10 and 11, he said that through faith in Jesus, we experience the power of the resurrection. That's kind of the glorious pinnacle of Philippians 3. Paul has said that if you're a follower of Jesus, if you've believed the gospel right now, this very moment, you have the resurrection life of Jesus pulsing in your spiritual bloodstream. The resurrection power that the Holy Spirit grants us, the same power that brought Jesus Christ back to life is resident within each of us who are Christians even now. That's one of the great benefits of gaining Jesus Christ, Paul has said. But the resurrection life of Jesus is not yet fully realized. That's mainly seen in that we still have what we can call, very graciously, pre-resurrection bodies, right? We get sick, we get tired, we get old, and eventually every one of us will face death. So we don't have resurrection bodies yet, but our not yet fully experiencing the resurrection life of Jesus is also evident in our inner lives. We still struggle with temptation. We struggle with sin. We struggle with the world. We struggle with the evil one. So Paul's saying that it's not that because I've gained Jesus, I've become perfect. Look in verse 12. He's saying that no one in this life ever has it all together as a follower of Jesus. In fact, maturity as a Christian is partly an acknowledgement that we still have so much to figure out. So much to grow into. Maturity means knowing that we haven't arrived. So the resurrection life of Jesus is present and active in our inner being But it's not yet fully realized in every aspect of our life. We are alive in Jesus in principle, but not yet fully in practice. Theologians call this idea the already not yet. The already not yet. That is, we already possess the benefits of Jesus' death and resurrection by faith. But we don't yet experience those benefits fully. And so much of your experience if you're a believer in Jesus, is the experience of more and more living practically in a way that matches what is true of you in principle as a person who has been saved by grace and rescued from death. Let's think about that practically. What does it look like? What does the experience of living in the already not yet mean for us? Well, look at verse 14. Paul says that it looks like pressing on toward the goal. Pressing on toward the goal. That's a way to summarize our experience as believers in Jesus now, before he returns. Again, that verb pressing on is an athletic image. And it's an idea that, again, evokes in our minds this idea of spiritual intensity, of laser focus on what is to come. Most of us probably are familiar with the Olympic runner Usain Bolt from Jamaica. He's the fastest man in the world. He runs the 100 meters and the 200 meters. And he's won gold like in every race since 2008 in the Olympics. But 
he was actually also in the Olympics in 2004 when he was 17, which is unbelievable in and of itself. And you can watch his race in the 100 in 2004 where he loses. It's the last time he lost an Olympic race. And if you watch the race, you'll see that Bolt loses in the last couple of meters. He has the lead as he's sprinting towards the finish line, as he's pressing on towards the goal. And then he does this. He just looks sideways to see who's next to him. And just as he does this, the guy next to him blows by to win gold. The idea is that Bolt, for just a split second, lost his focus. He kept his eyes off the prize, to use that famous athletic image. And that's exactly the idea that Paul has in mind for what it means to be a Christian in this world. We are to keep our eyes set on what is ahead. We are to press on towards the goal and not be distracted. So what is the goal? Well, look there again in 14. He says we're to press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. What does that mean? That means that the goal sitting before us, you know, like a gold medal or like a silver cup, the goal is knowing and gaining Jesus Christ fully. That's what God has called us to. And that's not just a reference, by the way, to going to heaven when we die. Rather, what Paul is referring to here is something much more significant even than that. It's a reference to the new heavens and the new earth that Jesus will come down and establish. That's clear in verse 21, where we read there that Jesus will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. So the goal is the new heavens and the new earth. The goal is life in a perfected, glorified, resurrection body. The goal is the consummation and restoration of all things when God in Jesus has made all things new. That is the goal. That's what we are to focus our intensity on. That is the prize that we are running for. Like an athlete runs towards the gold medal. Are you pressing on towards that goal or some other goal? What is the focus of whatever intensity you may have in your life right now? Is your life characterized by the kind of spiritual intensity that Paul writes about here? By pressing on. Is it even possible to have that kind of life? And if it is possible to live with this kind of spiritual intensity, how can we get there? How can we move forward in the process? I want to show you, secondly, three things that we can do. So the second point is how to press on. We see that it's important. We see that it's necessary. So how do we do it? Paul gives us some clues in these verses. How to press on, how to live with that kind of intensity, how to strain forward as an athlete running for the gold medal. First, we press on by remembering the origins of our pressing on. Look in verse 12. This perhaps is the most important way we press on. All of our efforts and intensity in straining towards the goal, we read here, come from God's own prior intensity of love towards us. Look at what Paul writes. I press on to make it, that is perfection, the goal, my own. And then I love this phrase, because Christ Jesus has made me his own. That's so important. In fact, that's essential. The only reason that the apostle Paul presses on is because he has been pressed 
on by Jesus. The only reason that Paul seeks to grasp and overtake the prize is because he himself has been grasped. He has been overtaken by the love of God in Christ. And the same is true for each of us if we're Christians. We strain forward to what lies ahead because Jesus has already strained forward to reach us. We pursue life with Jesus because Jesus has pursued us. God's work is the prior work. God's work is the originating work. We press on. We expend effort. We strive and strain like an athlete training with intensity only because Jesus has already done exactly that for us. Brian Chappell is a pastor and theologian, and he's written a book called Holiness by Grace. And in that book, he tells the story of these two men named Dick and Ricky Hoyt. And they're a father and a son that run in Ironman competitions together. And over the years, they've run in over 800 Ironman races. But the catch is that the son, Ricky, has cerebral palsy. And so Ricky has to be pulled or pushed or carried by his father in every single competition. And Chapel tells the story of one competition where it was extremely windy and cold. And on top of that, they had an equipment failure during the bicycle portion of the race. And it made it very, very difficult for the two to progress forward. It was really hard on Ricky, the son, with cerebral palsy, even though his dad was the one pedaling the tandem bike that they were on. And at one point, Dick knelt down to his son with a whole many miles to go in the cold sleet, and he asked him, do you want to keep going, son? Now, that's not a perfect illustration, but the father here is the one enabling and providing the means to win the race, the means to continue in the race, the means to overcome. But the son still had to have the heart to continue. To the son was given the privilege and the responsibility to desire to finish the race, but the power and the strength were provided by dad, right? And that's exactly how it is in our spiritual lives. We must press on. We must have the desire, but the strength and the power comes from God who has already brought us in by his grace. Can you just think about this with me? Do you have a sense in your life that Jesus has pursued you? Do you have a sense that your life has been captured by Jesus Christ? That doesn't necessarily have to be a big, radically dramatic experience for you. But for Christians, there's always a sense of the reality that Jesus has simply taken us and we are, we are his. You are the object of the intense love and pursuit of God. That makes Christianity unique of all the world religions. Because Christianity, the gospel says that Our religious life, our spiritual intensity doesn't start with you. It starts upon you. It comes from the outside and invades your life. You can't make yourself a Christian. Do you know that? You don't take up Christ. Christ takes up you. If that sounds completely foreign to you, 
let the scriptures challenge you to examine if you've really encountered the risen Jesus and been captured by him. Part of the way we press on is by remembering that, remembering the origins of our pressing on. Second, we press on by forgetting what lies behind. Look there in verse 13. I don't consider that I've made it my own, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on. Remember the Usain Bolt illustration. He turned to the side. He was worried about who was behind him, and it caused him to lose the race. He lost by looking back. Paul says the same thing here. What Paul means is this. Our past, our past can cripple us from moving forward as faithful followers of Jesus. Is that happening to you? Is there a lack of spiritual intensity or a lack of a sense of God's gracious presence in your life because you are bound to your past? What a major issue that is for those of us who are seeking to follow Jesus. You know, for some of you, you are bound to your past in this sense. You can't forget what lies behind because you can't forgive yourself. You live with this overbearing sense of guilt. You live with this sense of shame because of past failures or mistakes or episodes of rebellion that have ongoing consequences, perhaps, in your story. I mean, maybe you're recovering from an addiction. Maybe you've ruined past relationships with selfishness and blindness. Maybe you've experienced, so to speak, many prodigal years of wandering that have left you wounded and torn up on the inside. Listen, part of pressing forward is to let go of your past failures by leaving them in the hands of Jesus. Jesus knows all about those past mistakes. In fact, he knows much, much more about your mistakes than you know about your mistakes. And you know what happens in the cross? The cross tells you that Jesus, who knows all of these things about you, was willing to die so that those things can be done away with in your life. He went to the cross to be rid and to rid you of those things that continue to have uh, a sense of guilt and press shame into your story. Jesus died to forgive you of those things. If Jesus, who knows everything about you, who knows all of your failures, is willing to forgive you, then you need to be able to forgive yourself and move forward. You are not defined by your past failures. You're defined by Christ's past successes. Forget your past. I know that's difficult. That's a lifelong journey for many, if not most of us. And yet so much a part of what it means to be a Christian, I don't want this to sound simplistic, is to more and more believe that Jesus went to the cross to deal with our past. He forgives us. He's opened his arms and fully welcomed us in the embrace of his mercy. There is a possibility for healing. We don't have to be crippled by guilt or by shame. Jesus really does take those things away. Let's forget what lies behind and strain forward. Some of us are trapped by our past. We're bound to our past, perhaps not because of past failures we've committed, but because of sin or evil that's been committed against you, right? Maybe it was abuse. Maybe you've been mistreated by parents or spouses or children. Maybe you've lost a job. Maybe your financial security is in tatters because of something that was no fault of your own. Maybe you've been victimized or hurt and the consequences continue to hunt you down in the present. 
This passage tells us that your past hurts are not the final word in your life. The final word in your life is the resurrection of Jesus Christ. The resurrection convinces us that we can deal with our past. The resurrection frees us to move forward, to strain ahead, to press on. Paul's saying here that his grace is with you and will be with you as you begin to put together the pieces of your brokenness. Jesus Christ is alive. So your past will not rule your future. Forget what lies behind, he says, and press on. And then finally, the third way we press on, according to these verses, is by what I'm calling letting our future dictate our present. Look in verses 18 through 20. That's the point of these verses. Paul writes there in 18 and 19 that there are some who, verse 19, set their minds on earthly things. That is, current desires or longings or pleasures rule them. They are only focused on the here and the now. And Paul says that that way leads to, verse 18, destruction because this present world is passing away. Now, it's not that we don't care at all about earthly things. It's not that we're so spiritually minded that we're no earthly good. That's not what Paul's saying here. But he's saying when our minds are set on these things as primary or ultimate, it hinders us from pressing forward, from pressing on. Paul says rather than letting the present dictate your life, remember, verse 20, that our citizenship is in heaven. In other words, our future home, the new heaven and the new earth, has already broken into the present in Jesus' coming and in the coming of the Holy Spirit. And we press on by understanding where our true loyalty, where our true allegiance lies, and living as if we are citizens of heaven. Now, the Philippians would have understood this because Philippi was a colony, a colony of the Roman Empire when Paul wrote this letter. And it had been for about 100 years. And colonialism, that's not a popular idea or phrase nowadays. But in ancient times, someone who was a Roman citizen and lived in the colony of Philippi, they would in large part have seen their job as bringing Roman culture as bringing Roman ideals, as bringing Roman governmental regulations to reality in a colony, in a place like Philippi. They colonized Philippi with Roman culture. And that's exactly Paul's idea here. He is saying that Christians press on and live as if we are colonizing this world. We are to make it resemble our real home the place where our real citizenship lies, God's kingdom itself. What would it look like for us to be a people who live in this world as a colony of heaven? I mean, that is a great definition of the church. That's what the church is. The church is a colony of what the future world will look like. It's a colony of the kingdom of God in the present world. What would it look like for us to live more and more as if that were true, as we seek to press on together? It would mean we use our money very differently. We're radically generous. It would mean that we treat the poor with dignity and with love and with honor. It would mean that we forgive one another as we have been forgiven, as Jesus tells us, 70 times 7. It would mean that we glory in our weakness and reject the wicked power structures of this world. 
it would mean that we care about injustice and work to stem the tide of the injustices of our world, whether that be racial injustice, whether that be abortion, whether that be sex trafficking or human slavery. We participate in bringing the life of the world to come into the here and now, and in so doing, we press on. We press on towards the goal. So along with Paul, we're to press on towards the goal of resurrection life. We do this by remembering that Jesus pursued us first. We do this by forgetting what lies behind. And we do it by living as a colony of heaven in this world, letting the future reality that we know is coming dictate how we live in the present. Eugene Peterson is an author who uh, has written so many really helpful books. And I think a quote from one of his books summarizes the point of this passage very well. And so I'm going to read it. It's behind me on the wall. Uh, But I'm going to read this for, for us as we conclude. Listen to what Peterson writes. We see what is possible. Anyone and everyone is able to live a zestful life that spins out of the stereotyped containers that a sin inhibited society provides. Such lives fuse spontaneity and purpose and green the desiccated landscape with meaning. And we see how it is possible by plunging into a life of faith, participating in what God initiates in each life. It is those who are conscious of participating in what God is doing who are most alive. And these people are evidence that none of us is required to live at this poor dying rate for another day, for another hour. That is the life that is possible for God's people by his grace. And so let's press on. Let's pray.